encouraging. I like the, uh, the smallest room to accommodate the group. There's energy, there's energy when there's a full room. You put you in your Miller Park and it would be, or American Family Field, that's no good. All right, everyone. We are, uh, this is Holy Week, this is Maundy Thursday. Our psalm is uh, 118. Psalm 118. And we're going to pray the entire psalm today, not just 19 through 29. It is the Passover psalm traditionally prayed uh, in the Old Testament and at the time of Jesus in the celebration of the Passover around the, around the table. So we will pray the entire psalm responsively by half verse. We'll use the Job verse of the week in the congregation as prayer as an antiphon before and after the psalm. And then we will sing stanzas one and two of A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining For. All right. So we'll pray the psalm out of the hymnal, so that's what you have to do. Del, I'm glad you brought these two delinquents here with you. That's really good. That's good. Is this going to be regular now? All right. All right. Yes? Which verse? If we're praying the whole thing, make a comment about verse 5. Yes. Um, What do you have in verse 5 after the asterisk? Yeah, the Lord answered and set me free is actually what it is. There's a misprint. His steadfast love endures forever. Yeah, it's actually the Lord answered. The Lord answered me and set me free. So I'm going to do all of verse 5 when we get there. Okay. Yeah, maybe I should make sure I, I have it down. Okay. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of his Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely. But he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. That I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Find the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. O Lord of our salvation, you were faithful to the fathers in redeeming them from slavery in Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. Teach us ever to cry out in faith to our true Passover lamb, 
that we might be delivered from the bondage to sin and be brought into the freedom of Christ's righteousness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. What does God's word say of citizens? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Let us pray. Merciful Father, grant us faith to pray for the civil authorities and to trust that you will accomplish your good and gracious will through them, though they may not be Christians, though they may often depart from the way of truth. Teach us to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness, and to be ready to do whatever is good in service to others in our community and nation. As Jesus commended himself to you in his testimony before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, and through it you worked your greatest good, teach us to rest in your promise to do the same for us in our age. Almighty and everlasting God, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our flesh and to suffer death upon the cross. Mercifully grant that we may follow the example of his great humility and patience and be made partakers of his resurrection. Bless Selah, Linda, Ava, Jackie, Chase, Nora, Karen, Verla, Paul, Rachel, and Sarah, celebrating baptismal birthdays. Preserve them in repentance and in the true faith. Bless Randy and Pam, celebrating a wedding anniversary. And those who serve in the armed forces, Jessica, John, Yvonne, Robert, Mark, Morgan, and David, give them integrity in their service and preserve them during times when they are placed in harm's way so that they do not lose the confidence of their salvation. We commend to you Tom Pinzel undergoing further medical procedures today, Michael Chen, Jan, Mark, Dawn, Dennis, Gabby, Mike, Peyton, Jamelin, Kathy, and Heather, for whom we have been praying. We lay all of our petitions for you, asking your blessing upon our meditations this holy week and all of the services in celebration of our Lord's death and resurrection, praying the words our Savior taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Stanzas 1 and 2, 438, A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth. A lamb goes on complaining forth The guilt of sinners bearing And laden with the sins of earth None else the burden sharing Grows patient on, grows weak and faint, to slaughter without complaint, but spotless life to offer. He bears the stripes, the wounds, the lies. The mockery and yet replies All this I suffer This Lamb is Christ, the soul's great friend The Lamb of God, our Saviour whom God the Father chose to send to gain for us his favor. Go forth, my son, the Father said, and free my children from their dread. Of guilt and condemnation, the wrath and stripes are hard to bear. But by your passion they will share the fruit of your salvation. All right, Matthew 26. While you're turning to that, we will have Bible class next Thursday, Easter week. Uh, This afternoon, we have a service at 2.30. The same service is done also in the evening at 7 o'clock. But at the evening service, there will be First Communions. There will also be the stripping of the altar, and then the cantate choir is singing. Otherwise, the services are the same, including corporate confession with individual absolutions, which is uh, kind of the foot washing. So that is tonight's service. Tomorrow, um, the tenebrae is at 9 o'clock in the morning. It is a non-communion service. And it will feature meditations upon the seven last words. So I will be doing little vignette meditations on each of the seven last words. 
The chief service for Good Friday is at 1 and at 7 o'clock with Holy Communion. That's the Passion According to St. John. Academy Choir sings in the afternoon service, Senior Choir in the evening service. Um, I love, we've been having the St. Matthew Passion, you know, throughout Lent and through Palm Sunday, all of it, and the uh, death and burial of Jesus concluded it yesterday. Now, uh, I'll be preaching on the St. John Passion on Good Friday. And it's very fascinating to see the differences between the two. The synoptic gospels uh, spend more time with Jesus before Caiaphas and the kangaroo court trial with the Sanhedrin. But John's gospel, Jesus is taken, this is where we learn he was taken to Annas first. Annas is the father-in-law to Caiaphas. So if you've heard me say this before, it bears out. This is like the mafia family, okay? It truly was. Annas is the old man, high priest. Caiaphas is the one officially in that role. Not that Caiaphas wasn't also just as corrupt as Annas, he was, but Annas is kind of the guy pulling the strings behind the scenes. So we learn from John's gospel that Jesus was taken from the, from, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane to Annas first and then from there to the fuller council of the Sanhedrin presided over by Caiaphas. So the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have Jesus before Caiaphas, and then he goes before uh, Pontius Pilate. But John's gospel, it mentions Caiaphas, particularly in that great unwitting prophecy, it is necessary that one man die for the people well, Caiaphas spoke the truth. But um, anyway, so that's, that's John's passion. The St. John Passion also has, um, unlike the synoptics, the synoptics record Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. John's Gospel does not include it. But what John's Gospel does include is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus says, Ego emi, I am. And they all fall to the ground. You know, I mean, whoever hears of a criminal, you know, willingly offering himself. And then again, whom are you seeking? I am. And then they all fall to the ground. And I say it that way because the English comes out, I am he, but it's really Ego emi which is one of the I am statements in John's gospel that most people miss. Just like Jesus walking on the water, it comes out in the translations, it is I. That's not what it is. It's ego emi. I am. I am who I am, you know, and then in the garden, I am, and they fall to the ground. It's kind of a cool thing. So John gives us some details that the synoptics don't. And it's not necessary for John's testimony to repeat what we already have in three other Gospels. Um, so you have that. 
It's also John's Gospel where before Pontius Pilate there's extended testimony. And the great what is truth uh, exchange. And Pilate's saying, do you not realize I have power to crucify you or power to release you? And which is true. But Jesus says, you would have no power unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered you to me has the greater sin, namely Caiaphas, the high priest, who should have known who Jesus was. Uh, so, some other differences. Does anyone know which gospel has Pilate delivering Jesus to Herod for him to weigh in? You know? It's Luke. And uh, so we don't have that, neither Matthew, Mark, or John. So if you wanted to read Luke, you could have that version. Yes, Anna. Speaking of Luke, comparing the Gospels of Jesus' words with the cross, Luke is the only one that records um, him referring to the two thieves. Yes. Christ, Luke oh. Oh, oh, don't be so certain about that. Because Luke um, could have been part of the 70 that Jesus had sent out. Um, Luke was associated with the Apostle Paul. And the testimony in Luke's uh, passion, if you understand that he's associated with Paul, he underscores things which, in my judgment, would have been particularly comforting to Paul, who had been Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church, and the one who was in charge at the martyrdom of Stephen. So it's in Luke's passion that we have when Jesus is first nailed to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's about Paul. I believe that the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, was not only in Jerusalem, but witnessed this whole affair. It's, it explains why he hated Jesus so. He was a Pharisee, filled with self-righteousness and pride. He studied under Gamaliel and was like a page in the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel was on the Sanhedrin. Gamaliel advised them on what to do with with Jesus. And then after the death and resurrection of Christ, it's Gamaliel who says, look, if this is of men, it'll come to nothing. Leave it alone. But if it's of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow it. And he advises actually caution. His younger pupil, though, was a zealot, Saul of Tarsus. So um, I believe that this is why in Luke's gospel throughout, it's in Luke's gospel that you have the extended parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son told to the Pharisees who grumbled that he receives sinners and eats with them. That is Saul. See? So I think the gospel of Luke is Saul is behind the scenes as one of the Pharisees witnessing these things. So when you come to the passion then, well, go back to the parable of the prodigal son. It's open-ended. You know, the younger son, representing all of those 
tax collectors and sinners whom Jesus received and ate with. But the older brother, I have, I have, I have never, and you never did this for me. And you're with me always. And the father comes out and pleads with him. But we don't know. Does the, does the older son come into the house and join the party or not? It's open-ended. Because what's going to happen with those Pharisees to whom Jesus told those parables? Well, in the case of Saul, he did come into the house by the grace of God. So anyway, in the Passion, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then the exchange that you pointed out, where you have the two malefactors and um, the one repentant thief says, you know, to his colleague who's crucified, do you not fear God? We deserve what we're getting. This man has done nothing wrong. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today you will be with me in paradise. I believe all of that is, is there uh, in Luke's testimony because of his connection to the Apostle Paul. Remember, all of these, the evangelists, the apostles, or what have you, like Martin Luther, though he was a doctor of theology, they're first and foremost pastors. In other words, they're caring about the spiritual welfare of those they serve. And that's true of Luke, who, though under the apostolic authority of Paul, was able to offer Paul wonderful comfort in the testimony that he included in the Gospels. Okay. I, I, lo I love this um, exploration of the relationships in the Gospels uh, because the, it, it, it opens you up to, to new insights and so forth. I, between the people, the relationship between the people that are um, alluded to, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see in the text, and you, under, so, and you can get help from the epistles in this or from the book of Acts to see the relationships. So Paul, um, oh, well, I, and, and it's, it's Dr. David Scares, the one who... Um, taught me all this. Pastor Gelbach, you could have had him, you know, if you'd have gone to the correct seminary. I, I wasn't ready for him. That's, <laughs> that's true. Many of us still aren't. Weeding in Eckerd. But um, Paul uh, as, was chosen as an apostle by the Lord. When they chose Matthias, they said someone who had been a witness. And as Paul, a Pharisee, he had been sent out the Pharisees sent out spies to follow Jesus. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So he would have witnessed. That's why I said yesterday in this sermon that sometimes the enemies of Jesus knew better what it was he was saying or the implications yes. than his own dunderhead disciples. <laughs> I am. Yeah. It's also in John's Passion coming up on Good Friday that we have um, the intimate scene where... Jesus appoints John to care for his mother, saying to her, woman, behold your son, referring to John, and then son, behold your mother. And um, I know growing up, I was always taught that it simply was um, fourth commandment honor of his mother, 
which is not incorrect at all. But in John's gospel that begins with, in the beginning, like Genesis, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in chapter 2, you've got the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Think about Genesis. Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 2, not only the creation of man, but the creation or institution of marriage. Genesis 3, it's in the context of marriage that humanity falls into sin. So no wonder the first miracle that Jesus performs is at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And everyone serves the good wine first, but you have saved the best till last. That's because the fruition or the culmination, the consummation of what God intended for his creation of man and his image and likeness is fulfilled in Christ, the bridegroom of his bride, the church. So then you fast forward to the passion. This is what John wants us to see when in essence, he's leaving his mother at the time of his passion and cleaving to his bride, the church. He's, the relationship has changed with his mother. Remember Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. In Genesis, how was Eve created? Out of Adam's side. In John chapter 19, the climax of the passion is the spear thrust into Jesus' side, out of which flows blood and water. And John says, I swear to you that this is the truth, and I'm telling the truth that you might believe. Believe what? Here's the second Adam. Like Pilate said, Eke homo, behold the man. Here he is. So, yeah, he's honoring his mother. Absolutely but he's also leaving father and mother, as it were, and cleaving to his wife, the bride formed out of his side, the blood and water, and the two become one flesh. So that's the climax of John's passion, okay? Isn't the Bible fun, Petrina? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Deacon. Yeah, Mary always represents the church, so you have John... Yeah, all those women that I said, you know, they're representative of the, the... I mean, think about it. The disciples scatter and flee, but the women remain. The cowards. <laughs> what? And in Mark's gospel, you have the autobiographical thing with Mark. Yeah. So listen again on Good Friday uh, at 1 or 7, the Passion. The guy who says, what is truth? ends up just overflowing with truth. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. Behold the man, the king of the Jews. What I have written, I have written. This is who he is, son of God, the Christ. Again, for a guy who struggled to know what the truth was, by the grace of God, God used him to confess the truth. All right. So then on, on Saturday, we have the uh, Easter Vigil, which is at 7.30. It will be a nice enough day. We'll be able to be outside for the service of light with the Paschal candle. Then we move into the church, lighting our candles as we come through the door. Um, there's the Easter exalted that rejoice, O ye heavenly choirs of angels, and so forth. 
and then the vigil is where you have readings and prayer. This year, six of them. Um, and then after the, the vigil portion comes the remembrance of baptism. If, uh, you know, if uh, Rachel really quickly has her baby, we could have a baptism yeah. at the <laughs> Easter vigil. But she was supposed to have the baby yesterday. In my judgment, but <laughs> anyway, and then uh, it's it's during that time that we have a couple of confirmations, and anybody received over the last year since the last vigil is welcome to come forward uh, for that public confession, and then it immediately goes into the resurrection gospel, and then um, the announcement of the resurrection. Remember the days. Thursday night, tonight, after sundown, is the beginning of Friday. Okay, Thursday night, Friday day, that's one. Because in biblical time, the day starts with sundown. So therefore, Friday night, after sundown, to Saturday day is the second day. Saturday night, that's why we meet just at dusk, to Sunday day, is the third day, Easter. Okay? So, Jesus' resurrection, uh, you could say, you know, takes place in the darkness. He descends into hell, not to suffer, but to proclaim his victory. And he's revealed in the sunshine daylight early Easter morning as the women come to the tomb. Okay? So, on the third day, he rose again. That helps you get the I know people have often struggled with that time thing because you're using your modern way of thinking of time rather than biblical. Even in the idea of evening and morning, the first day set forth at creation, you have the idea of death, darkness, and resurrection, light, okay, built into the fabric of creation. You know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified... Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So you've got many chief priests, but you have one chief of all the chief priests, Caiaphas. 26.2. Now we're in 26.3. We're in 26.4. And plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So what's described there in verse 3, 4, and 5 is the Sanhedrin. That was the name of the council of the Jews. This is a, quote-unquote, religious body. I put that in quotes because it was cronyism. It was like a mafia. They had charge of the temple and the temple complex. Boy, I should really bring that. Gary, can you go in my office? On the bottom, around the coffee table, I, I think there or else on the other is my, that rose book on the temple. You, you know, uh, all right. I, 
Let's see if he's like Andrew or John. He sent Andrew away to get something as a kid, and an hour passes. And then he comes back without it. And, and you go, and it's right there on the shelf, square in front of him. That I, he got distracted. Yeah, he got distracted. Uh, so the Sanhedrin is, is in charge of the temple complex. But they also had, because the Romans are an occupying power. You know, when Hitler invaded Europe, uh, he installed puppet governments, but like in France, for example, these weren't Germans who were the government after the invasion. These were French. Okay? So, but you install those who are going to do what you want, who are going to acquiesce. So Rome, as an occupying power, remember at this time, and this, it's during the, the great Pax Romana, so the, the Roman Empire spans all the way over to Spain and all of northern Africa and all of what we call today the Holy Land, which includes uh, you know, down to Egypt, which is northern Africa, Syria, Lebanon, and so forth. It includes all of that area, present-day Turkey and so forth. So it, it's either up right by my desk, but I think it's down by the, you know the one I'm talking about. It's got kind of like a comb binder. It's the rose thing. It's just got an ass, awesome picture of the. Yeah, right. So it's, it's big. You can't have, you need to rely upon locals. And in the Roman Empire at this time, the biggest pain in the Tyrolean political keister for Rome was the Jews in Palestine. So the Sanhedrin was useful for the Romans to maintain control over Jerusalem and Judea in particular. Okay? So this is why when Pilate says, if we don't do something about this in John's Gospel, he says, after the raising of Lazarus, the whole world's going to go after him. And we will lose our nation. What that means is, we'll lose our power. Because if everybody among the Jews follows Jesus, then we've lost our position under the Roman government, okay? Remember, in the ancient world, it doesn't happen anymore today. Politicians often do what they do just to maintain their power. Now, it doesn't happen any longer, but it, uh, it certainly happened in the ancient world. I should tell them if they can't find it, it's no big deal. All right. So this explains also in verse 6, they're, they're making the plot to take Jesus by trickery. It was laying on its side, wasn't it, Tom? Um, yeah, not exactly what I would call by your desk, but okay. <laughs> no, I said by the, by the coffee table yeah, area, or if not there, by my yeah, desk, but I think it's by the coffee table. 
So not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. This indicates the great popularity of Jesus even at the time of his crucifixion. And in Jerusalem at this time, Passover is a pilgrim feast, so you've got Jews coming there by the thousands. It's why Jesus and the disciples, frankly, went out to Bethany. They stayed in the home with uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. It's only a couple miles from Jerusalem because there's no place to stay in Jerusalem. And those who were pilgrims that came there, they camped out in tents on the Mount of Olives. So when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, these are, and, and people are greeting him, most of the people greeting him are not residents of Jerusalem. Most of the people that are greeting him are those from Galilee, Samaria, Judea, that, and, and elsewhere who had come for the feast. And they had either witnessed his preaching and his miracles or heard of him and there was a buzz in the air. The crowd that is assembled by the Sanhedrin, by the high priest, are all of the sympathizers with their power. They're part of their cronies. They called in their favors, their IOUs. Because when they appear on Friday morning, it's between 5 and 6 a.m., before Pontius Pilate. These are not pilgrims that were, had journeyed there that were camped out on the Mount of Olives. They were still, you know, in their tents. Uh, Jesus is, finally is sentenced to death. I mean, all of this takes place in the morning. Pilate, then from Pilate, I mean, Thursday night, in the darkness, the Sanhedrin. Friday morning, early, Pilate, then he sends him to Herod, Herod ships him back to Pilate. There's the scourging, um, and between 8 and 9 o'clock in the morning, he is carrying his cross, and then Simon the Cyrenian is compelled to carry it. So he's nailed to the cross about 9 o'clock in the morning. By the time noon occurs, there's darkness. That's why the tenebrae service tomorrow is at 9 o'clock, and the extinguishing of the candles, so that by noontime, the descent of darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour, which is noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. Okay. Uh, now this this is a um, if you can see in this the temple is in the center, and then there are attendant buildings immediately surrounding it, and then there's this huge outer courtyard, and so you can see animals and you can see people out there. The altar of burnt sacrifice is in front of the temple because it's open air. Now I'll show this to you. This is what it looked like at the time of Jesus. Do you see that? See all those little dots? You know, that's what the enormous size of this place was. Now, the temple proper is that tall square right in the center. But you can see the courtyards around it. A couple of football fields, I I would say. You can see all the critters there because they're bringing in, you know, animals for the sacrifices. 
And what happens is then in the book of Acts, this is the same temple complex where the disciples went, the apostles, to preach. Okay. Now, if you think about this, in 70 AD, this is the complex that the Romans destroyed. when they ransacked the city. Okay. And I'll bring this here for you to see. Okay. So there was lots, you see all those open air areas. There was lots of area where Jesus could assemble and start preaching. And so during Holy Week, so when you come to the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, have you come out against with, as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I taught daily in the temple. You know, I've said nothing in secret. Okay. But you see, who's there? It's like going to you know, can we just call it Miller Park and be done with it? it? We just go there and you're all Brewer fans. So don't speak out against it. I mean, if you went there as a Cub fan and you started uh, shouting and ripping on Paul Molitor or Robin Yount, you know, you'd be stoned, right? Well, this is what the, the Sanhedrin, to speak against Jesus there is not a politically expedient. So we're going to find a way to arrest him away from the crowds and multitudes long after dark. It's going to be on the Mount of Olives. We'll come out with a contingent of troops and the Sanhedrin had their own temple guard. So if you see the Passion of the Christ, that's a very good uh, example. Those soldiers are different than the Roman soldiers under Pilate. The temple guard is answerable to the high priest. Okay? You might wonder, why did they have to have Judas along? All of you who have glasses on, take them off right now, and then see if it's nighttime and you can recognize anybody. Okay? So, uh, they didn't have the, the ven- benefit of corrective lenses. Judas is necessary to identify Jesus, at which he does with the kiss. That's coming up. So all of that is involved in this plotting to take Jesus by trickery and then kill him. It's also why this, in St. John's Passion, we have a law, and according to our law, he has to die. It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's true according to Roman law although the Sanhedrin had no problem executing people when it was expedient. They were going to stone these people. So they feign allegiance to the law. We are not given the authority to do this. The Romans have to do this. But the real reason is we don't want his blood on our hands. So if Pilate sentences him to death... 
it doesn't put us squarely in the center. Does that mean he's not quite the martyr? In other words, if the Sanhedrin were specifically putting him to death, he would be more of a martyr to the people? I'm just, you know, it's a nuance. I'm curious. <laughs> well, he's, I mean, he's still a martyr, but I mean, Caiaphas delivering up to Pontius Pilate, the high priest is the one who had oversight over the Passover sacrifices. So he is doing his work even though um, he didn't believe in Jesus because he's offering up the Passover lamb. All right. So verse 6 and following, When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. All right, now a number of things I want to highlight about this. Who is this Simon the leper? There are differences of opinion on the identity of this man. We know that this is Bethany because it says so explicitly. We know from John's gospel that Jesus stayed in Bethany in the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. We also know from the other gospels that this is Mary who anoints him, the sister of Lazarus and of of, uh, Martha. We also know that Jesus loved to change names. What happened to Lazarus a little over a week before Holy Week? He died. I wonder what he died of. Perhaps he died of advanced leprosy. Uh, it's uh, Dr. Wiest, Reverend Dr. Wiest, who conjectured that this Simon the leper, known as the leper because he doesn't have leprosy anymore. He's cleansed of his leprosy. Lazarus means God is my help. Okay? So he... Um, hypothesize that Simon the leper is actually Lazarus. There was a guy named Lazarus in Luke that had sores. Yeah, there was a guy named Lazarus in, in Luke who had sores. That's true. But um, I, I'm not making that a dogmatic assertion. It doesn't change the doctrine here at all. He is in Bethany. He is having dinner. He is anointed by this woman. And Jesus that the disciples here in general object. In uh, 
in John's gospel, well, there's also it in, in Mark, uh, Judas is specifically identified, and then it says of him in John's gospel that he objected because he had the money box, and he was a liberal Democrat who really didn't care about the poor, but he just pocketed the money for himself. Oh, I'm sorry. Did that offend you? No. <laughs> but he, it, does say, it, it doesn't say the liberal Democrat part, okay. But it does say that he was a thief, and he, took, he used to take what was put in it. These are, the, these are the details in John's gospel that you don't have in the synoptics. All right. The other thing here is that, so this is an act of love. It's a, an act of devotion for Jesus. It is a confession of faith in him. And in some way, because of what Jesus said, what does Mary believe is going to happen? According to what Jesus says. He's going to die. She's anointing my body for burial. And this is why we are called to talk about this wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman did. Because it is an act of love and worship of him who would die for her. Okay? And uh, the poor you have with you always. If you read last week this section, there is the reference in John's, in, uh, John's gospel to Leviticus about caring for the poor, which is an ongoing thing. <coughs> Jesus is alluding to that. The poor you'll have with you always. So there, there'll be lots of opportunity for you to care for the poor. Me, you do not have always, not in this, in this way. So Jesus continually affirms the uh, directives of love in the Torah, in this case for the poor. Like if you remember the story of Ruth, according to the Torah, you, when you harvest your grain, you were not supposed to go back and pick up what had dropped to the ground but you were to leave that to the poor. That was the first example in the Bible of, you know, work for welfare. Okay? So the poor could have this grain, but they had to work to get it. Okay? It's amazing how the Bible is. Pastor, or, this, yeah. this anointing, uh, it was this before the Last Supper, or was it during the Last Supper? This is before. Is this is before, before that. Because the, the, the Passover and the Lord's Supper, that's in Jerusalem. That's on Thursday night. Okay? We're in Jerusalem. The parables that we heard in the Fifth Discourse are what Jesus uh, taught in the temple complex on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Sunday he overturned the money changers' temples, uh, temp tables, so it's probably Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday that he's there. <clears throat> so this is one of the evenings back out in Bethany. Any other questions about that part? Pastor, yeah. So did Mary know that he was going to die when she did this anointing, or was it That's just what Jesus says. So she has she, anointed my body for burial. But that's what I mean. Wherever the gospel, know it or where, was it just somehow or other, she recognizes he must die. 
Does she know all of the particulars? That I doubt. But somehow, it's Mary, those who are the most pathetic have the greatest insight in the Gospels. Who understands Jesus best? The erudite scholars, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were supposed to know the most. Or was it the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind? Even in the household of Mary, uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, who is the one that sat at Jesus' feet? Mary. Everyone would say, you know, if I'm, if I'm uh, need somebody's help in the church, I'm going to ask Martha. Where is she? Is she? See? She's busy with many things. So I'm going to ask Martha. But it's Mary who has the greater insight. Why? In Luke 10, she's sitting at Jesus' feet. Mary has chosen the one thing needful, and it will be, not be taken away from her. Jesus said to Martha, 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 you are worried about many things. But Mary has chosen the one thing needful, and it will not be taken away from her. And with that came wisdom and insight and understanding. Yeah. And, uh, Mary Magdalene, by the way, which is not this Mary, she too had great insight. The connection here also, the word for um, uh, ointment is myrrh, which is related to the same word that right. the wife had brought. So you have his birth with the oil. And now his death of oil. Yes. It's the same in Matthew 2, the fragrant oil is myrrh. Here, the fragrant oil is the oil of spikenard, but it's the in the Greek, it's, it's the same. Now this I mean fragrant oils were used for anointing of priests and kings and so forth, but also anointing bodies for burial. Okay. So it's set up here after the fifth discourse, this anointing for burial. You think about Jesus anointing at his baptism. He's the Lamb of God. That's the beginning of his ministry, remember, in Matthew 3. Now here, the anointing as Holy Week is underway and we're ready to go to the cross. Christine. Could you help me understand what it's kind of smelled like and how long did that fragrance last? Oh. Ich weiß nicht. I know not. Petrina. I just bought a little container that says it's myrrh. And I think, I don't know if it's myrrh, because it smells like citronella. Oh, you know, yeah. that's the yeah. old thing. No, it's a little bit I don't know. I, I don't know. One of the things, the anointing with oils, also to cover the smell of decomposition. Well, yes, yes. Yes, uh, Greg Dietrich of Schmidt and Bartelt has often talked to me about this. The perfumes used for bodies that have gotten a little bit ripe. Oh, good. All right. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, 
What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. And the 30 pieces of silver we also had in the uh, Old Testament uh, reference last week about the price of him whom they had priced from the Old Testament, Zechariah. Uh, now, the question I wanted to ask is, what do you think about, what was Judas believing was going to happen? What? He was going to get 30 pieces of silver and Jesus was going to not let them be taken and he could handle the situation. There's nothing so serious out of it. I'm going to get 30 pieces of silver. When you combine the gospel narratives, you learn that Jesus being condemned for execution and torture was more than Judas had bargained for. So take him out of the way. Uh, that he is a covetous money grubber is clear because he had the money box and he used to take what was put into it. So an opportunity to make money get Jesus out of the way, and he gains a profit so, from so doing whenever, it. whenever Jesus said, I'm going to die, he was like refusing to even understand that. Well, all of the disciples oh, were, had, yeah. had difficulty with that. Okay. Except Mary. Except. She got it. Right. <laughs> so um, I, I'd like you to bear that in mind. He knows they want him out of the way and he can't resist the prospect of making a profit. But when he finds the depth of suffering he is going, he's going through and that he's going to be executed in this horrible fashion, he is remorseful. I mean, there, it is possible for someone who uh, doesn't believe in Jesus to be remorseful about things. We see it all of the time, you know, uh, a sadness over horrible human suffering or what have you. You don't have to be a Christian uh, to, to have that. Judas ends up uh, killing himself to be his own savior. Judas is condemned not because of his act of betrayal. But for what reason? Unbelief. Impenitence and unbelief. I mean, describe to me why Peter's denial is more, is less evil than Judas' betrayal. When Peter, according to the Gospels, invokes the name of God and swears on an oath, I swear to God I don't know the man. Can you explain to me 
and he does it three times. He does it publicly. He does it before everybody in that courtyard. Explain to me why that is not as sinful as the betrayal of Judas. Well, but, but the act itself, when he is doing it, it's just, as bad. it's just as bad. That's what I want you to see. It's just as bad. I'm not trying to have you find merit in it. <laughs> well, we understand why he did it, you know. So we can understand why he did it, and he should be adored a little bit more than Judas because he was really nasty. Well, he swore to God. What would you think if I renounced my Christian faith that I've been preaching for the last 35 years from the pulpit and say, I don't believe any of this. This is all false. There is no God. Jesus is not the Savior. Would you find some goodness in that? Okay. That's what Peter is doing. And he does it after taking his vow, I will never deny you. I will even go to death with you before I deny you. Okay. So the difference between the two men in the end turned on repentance, contrition and repentance. That's the difference between the two. Maybe it was Sunday, I'm not sure. But when, when you said, okay, Judas was sorry, he came to the priests and he said he was sorry. He didn't want that to happen. If the priests had done their job, would he have hurt the guy? I don't know. I just keep going. Well, Wait a minute. Is this, the, 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 uh, is this their fault? If they had done their job, uh, they wouldn't have done what they did to Jesus in the first place. But if they'd done their job, we don't know what the outcome would have been. But we do know that what Judas needed was the ministry of the gospel, which he did not receive. You know, what is that to us? You see to it. And then he did. They couldn't give what they hadn't received. They couldn't give what they hadn't received, right. Okay. All right. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, the reason it says the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is because Though the Passover is a specific day, and this year, in 33 AD, the specific day of the Passover fell on Friday. Though it was a specific day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the celebration of the Passover, spanned a number of days, which gave opportunity for families to slaughter lambs and eat the Passover within this period of time. Does that kind of make sense? And if they're going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and there's literally thousands of people there, um, not all lambs can be slaughtered and processed at the same time so that everybody is eating on the same day. Okay. I've used the analogy before. It's like your family gatherings. You know, we're going down to St. Louis to celebrate Christmas. Well, it's the 27th of December. Yeah, that's, we're busy here, and then we'll go down there and celebrate with the family there. 
So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's why it says the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Where do you want us to prepare? Because we got to do it during this time frame. And they will end up doing it on essentially the day of the Passover, which, as I said before, is Thursday night to Friday day. Remember? Okay. And um, when you hear in the Passion, the preparation day is whatever day in the Feast of Unleavened Bread that you slaughter the lamb and prepare it. So he said, go into the city to a certain man, now that's the city of Jerusalem, because they're in Bethany, and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And isn't this freaky? To a certain man. You go, you know, you, so you go, go over towards Delafield and then you knock on the door of John Bruss and we will eat the Passover at your house. <laughs> so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, we learn from Mark's Gospel and from the book of Acts that this certain man... Uh, had an upper room. And this certain man was likely Mark. the father, the father of John Mark. Mother. <laughs> now when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Namely, it was written of him that he would suffer at the hands of the chief priests, elders of the people, and be crucified. The third day he would rise again. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, namely Judas, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born, for he dies under God's judgment in impenitence and unbelief. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? Knowing full well that it was. Will Jesus identify me? And he said to him, You have said it, which is to say, yes. Now, what I, I in bringing up Peter and Judas, I didn't want you to think that um, there was any merit in G G Peter's denial. Having said that, there is a difference between the proactive betrayal that results in Jesus' arrest and after he's arrested, acting out of your weakness to deny your Lord because you're afraid of what will happen to you. In other words, Jesus is on his, he's already been arrested. He's on his way to condemnation. When, why does Peter, uh, we'll get to it, you know, uh, next week, but why does Peter deny? 
he's afraid. You know, why, why do Christians renounce their faith in the face of persecution? They're afraid to suffer. They're afraid to die. Does it, in every case, mean a total impenitent rejection of Jesus? No. And St. Paul says, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. All right. Yeah. What I do think is interesting is, is they're asking, is it I? Prior to this, it was, I will never deny you. I will not betray you. Well, that comes next. Yeah. Oh. It comes next. Yeah, it, that hasn't occurred yet. It's going to come on in the verses following, uh, like verse 35 of this chapter. Okay. Well, we're out of time today, so we'll... We'll jump back in here with the Passover celebration, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and then Jesus predicting Peter's denial. So it'll be Easter week next week, but we'll still be doing on this. Grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.